Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's text is an essay written by Black civil rights activist Francis Beale in 1969. It's called Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female. And I have to say, it kind of took my breath away. It answered some questions that I've had for a long time, and it introduced new questions that I didn't know that I needed to ask. And it gave me a lot to think about that I've been thinking about ever since I read it. And I'm really, really excited and really, really grateful to have Raina McKay back on the show to discuss this text with me. Hi, Raina. Hi, Amy. I'm so excited to be back. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much. Listeners will remember you, Raina, from our episode a little while ago on Sojourner Truth's speech, Ain't I a Woman? And Francis Beale actually mentions Ain't I a Woman here in this essay, Double Jeopardy, which is really cool. Such a I cool connection. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And Ain't I a Woman just keeps coming up. It's such a touchstone <laughs> for feminist writers in lots of things that I'm reading. So, um, yeah. But for Double Jeopardy, I know you mentioned when we talked about this in the beginning, you said you'd read it before. Yep. So I had, I had never read it. This was a completely new text for me. And so I'm really eager to hear your thoughts, how it strikes you this time reading it. But first, yeah. before we start talking about the text, um, I'd love it if you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, if you could tell us a little bit more about your family. I remember a little while ago reading a New York Times article about a member of your family that you posted on Facebook, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about that and how your family maybe contributed to make you who you are today. Sure. So actually, it was almost exactly a year ago. It was just a little over a few weeks ago. It was a year ago that my grandfather actually died. And Mm. the article that I posted um, on social media was the New York Times obituary. Um, My grandfather was a major player in the civil rights movement, especially in terms of education and um, desegregating schools. Um, If I'm sure you know about Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. And um, my grandfather was uh, the hallmark of that. He was the superintendent of the New York City School Districts at the time. So he was um, an active participant in uh, desegregating our schools in the 1950s oh and 60s. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it I is. have uh, such a legacy of um, incredible civil rights activists in my family. So I think that that is is um, truly kind of the basis of what made me who I was, um, Mm -hmm. or who I am, I should say. Uh, My grandfather, interestingly enough, so he raised six girls and one son. Um, My mom and her sisters were all first, and then my uncle came along as the caboose of the family. And there is a running joke that if my uncle had come along first, none of the girls would have existed. Oh, no. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I know it's awful. Oh, dear. So misogynist in such like a <laughs> in such like a feminist um, empowered family, but it oh, is so how funny. true. <laughs> well, that was the time too, it right? Was. I mean, it was. Oh my gosh, it was. That's but funny. the great thing about that was that he had these six girls before he had his son, and he mm. treated these six girls uh, into women 
exactly like he would have planned on raising us them if they were all sons. And so everything, and this was kind of revolutionary, right? For the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So everything that he instilled in my uncle, he instilled in them before. And it was, you can be anything, you can do anything, but you must have the education to back yourself up. Mm. And so I think I am so grateful that it worked out the way it did because that same sort of empowerment just spilled into all of the rest, the next generation. And now we even have a third generation that has come along. You know what I mean? In that, and that just trickled down from there and there. So for that, I am incredibly grateful because from the moment I took a breath in our family, I never thought that I was anything less than in terms of my gender. Hmm. That's amazing. What a gift. Yeah. So, um, then, so that was the basis of, you know, the start of my life. But then, um, I guess you were asking about my parents. Um, my father, uh, was a Texan and he was a nuclear mathematician of all things. And he actually, um, helped, uh, develop the atom bomb in the 1960s. So, um, during that time he had kind of a crisis of conscience, I guess you would say it, or maybe it was midlife Mm -hmm. crisis, who knows what it may have been, but then he actually decided to, um, resign from that field of work and he became a playwright and that's how he Whoa. and I know, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's a big career pivot. <laughs> it's a career, total career pivot. <laughs> wow, amazing. And what I a balanced know. person, too, to have like the yeah. mathematical skill to be like literally like a nuclear physicist and then be like, and now I will write plays. That's amazing. (laughs) I know. Crazy. Yeah. Gosh, what a genius. And he was, he was super, super smart. Um, My mom said, I guess when he was a kid, which was very surprising, honestly, that they even tested him. If you think about this in the 19, what would this have been? 1950s, uh, Mm. late fifties, Texas, African-American boy, he actually took the test for Mensa and he passed it. So, you know what I mean? But that's very, once again, off type for what you would expect happening during that time in our society, right? Mm. And in the South. And in the South, exactly. Amazing. Exactly. So, um, yeah, they met in the 70s in New York. Um, My mom was working at that time. My mom's an educator. um, And so she was working in um, the Head Start program in the 60s and was very involved in um, like late 60s, early 70s and in voter registration and civil rights activists. But at the same time, she had her best friend who um, was in the arts and her best friend um, is who connected my mom and dad. They met in New York, but it was actually years later when um, my grandfather, interestingly enough, became um, the dean of... um, UCSF's College of Education. And my, I know. And so my mom had to move her baby brother from the East Coast to the West Coast. She drove cross country Mm. with him. And 
funnily enough, they, um, my mom and dad, my dad was at this time back in San Francisco and um, they touched base and I would say the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So for that, yeah. And so my mom ended up moving from um, New York to San Francisco uh, very shortly after that because um, she and my dad decided to start their life together. Um, Unfortunately, uh, nine months after I was born, my dad was killed in a car accident and so um, it was a very short life for them um, in terms of their togetherness. But hopefully I got some of my dad's uh, balance in his life. I feel like that's who mm-hmm. I got it from because yeah. I love all things, the arts, and I love literature, and I love um, music, and I have this entire creative side, but I am a scientist, you know? Yeah. So I feel, my mom says a lot that she's like, I think that's your dad in you. Oh, and I'm like, wow. well, that's that's a wonderful full legacy, you know, in that way. Um, So anyway, um, this is, I've got to make this a long story short, but no, (laughs) you don't have to make it short, actually, just keep going. Yeah. So um, this is just kind of bringing me to where our whole subject is going to be about a Mm -hmm. year and a half later after my dad died. um, My grandmother died, my mother's mother. So Mm -hmm. in a very short time, my mother experienced um, major loss in her life. And as a result, she was searching for a community and she was searching for, I would use the word, I mean, it sounds trite, but I think she was searching for peace and for mm. um, understanding. And um, that is when she joined uh, our mutual church. <laughs> and um, so then I feel like it was up until that point, um, our family, everything that I remember hearing from my family and especially my mother, I shouldn't say my family because my family never changed, but my mother um, was very much in line with our um empowerment and our civil rights activism in our family. Um, As when my mother joined our church, which as you know, is a predominantly white church inside the United States. um, I think in order to help assimilate us, um, the conversation changed from, uh, and I don't want to use the word black power because uh, that's never been a, Um, phrase in our family, but the conversation changed from a, um, not only acknowledgement, but almost a glorifying of our history and Mm. of the power associated with that to, Mm. um, I remember growing up, my mom used to always say things like, all are alike unto God. There is no color. Um, You're not black. I'm not caramel. You know what I mean? Like Mm. it was, it very much so moved from seeing color and acknowledging color and talking about it to um, there is none because Mm. everybody's the same um, unto God. And that was, I still remember even as a child, the pivot, right? Mm. Mm. And interestingly enough, because, you know, you want to honor your parent and especially, I mean, she was, she's my, she was my sole parent, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Growing up. And so this is the way, and she set the tone for our household, which is wonderful. And she's an incredible educator and she did incredible things. So there was nothing in that way. But I remember sitting there thinking, this is weird. 
Mm. This isn't this isn't right. And then especially when we moved from um, California and the Bay Area um, to Utah and um, suddenly I was truly the only person of color that I saw. I There was a running joke. My mom and I actually used to have that if I wanted to see a black person, I just looked in the mirror. Um, oh. oh, goodness. <laughs> you know oh. what I mean? That sounds lonely, Rena. It was. It was incredibly lonely. It was incredibly lonely. And then I had also, so not only was that externally lonely, but internally in our home. And now as a mother and as an adult, I understand that my mother was trying to cushion our circumstances for me. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. But then to have my mother constantly saying to me, there's no color everybody's Mm -hmm. alike unto God. And I was like, well, but I'm the only black person that I ever see. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? It was, it was just very um, hard to reconcile. I will put it Mm -hmm. that way. So, yeah, that is, that's really hard. So do you feel, so I wonder too, um, if that was part of the time, because I remember hearing um, that people, people just kind of in the cultural conversation. I grew up in Colorado and obviously Mm -hmm. I'm white, but I had, we, I grew up in a a pretty diverse area. I mean, certainly more than Utah where I did have black friends and I had, Mm -hmm. you know, Asian and Indian. I had, there was quite a bit of diversity where I lived, but I do remember people saying that they were colorblind. Like that was what you were supposed to be is that there wasn't color. And that was kind of the progressive charitable, like, Yep. Non-racist way to see things. And I feel like it's kind of changing. In fact, do you watch the show This Is Us? Yes. Every okay, once so- in a while. Well, I will say, can I caveat that? Yeah. I watch it when I want to have a good cry because totally. I swear I cannot <laughs> watch an episode I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. It's so good. Oh, man. It will, that show will get you every time. My husband cries too. We see it. We just watch it and cry together. I know. So I, I hold it. I, I reserve it for when I need to just let things out. <laughs> Catharsis. Yes. Totally. Well, I'm wondering because Randall, who's the character who is adopted and he's black, mm-hmm. adopted into a white family. And there's this mm-hmm. scene. I don't know if you've seen that episode, but it's it's kind of it's basically the same era that we grew up. Right. Yep, so it's the exactly. 80s. Yep. And Randall, yep. it, like the white dad says to the, you know, a, his adopted son, mm-hmm. whom he loves so much. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, I, I think he does say I don't see color. He and does. Randall says, if you don't see that I'm black, then you don't see, see me because I am black. Yep. And I wonder if yep. that is, re- that's what I thought of. And that resonates for you. And maybe that was part of the, I kind of the, yep. the, the thought in the eighties was like, oh, here's how we're going to make it all better is by not acknowledging the differences. Yep. Which and you're saying a- for you, it was hard. It was. It was super hard. Yeah. And that's exactly what resonated. And my mother, if um, so people who are used to seeing multicultural people and multi-ethnic people um, mm-hmm. would recognize that my mother was African-American or black. But okay. um, especially being in Utah in the 80s and the 90s, um, my mother is very, very light skinned and mm-hmm. um, she and she has brunette hair and she's very petite and she has freckles. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she um, she could, and I use this in air quotes, but the word is pass, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So she could either pass for Caucasian or at the most people thought she was Hispanic. So, okay. um, so for me, 
being so very clearly black Mm -hmm. And then having my mom say, well, we don't see color and we need to be colorblind and all of those sorts of things. I did very much feel like, well, then what am I, you know, because I do look so different. And um, that. So did. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. That's all. I was just going to say, do you take more after your dad? Then it seems like in your genes in every way, but you didn't have your dad to look at to right. be like, oh, we're black. Right. But so you really kind of were totally alone even in your household. I was. I was. Yeah, oh gosh. Yeah. I do remember meeting your mom actually in college. Yeah. She would come over to the yeah. dorms sometimes uh-huh. and I do remember like, yep. oh, that's so like Yeah, that's you, so interesting, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Because you don't I mean, you resemble her. Right. But if you put us next to each other, everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's mother and daughter. Like yes, you can see the facial sure. features. But no, from a quick glance, absolutely not. Yeah. No. And it's very I, interesting yeah. because my daughter looks almost like a miniature version of my mother. So oh, it is very, very interesting to see yeah. like when you see the three of us, because we all very much so look very similar in the eyes and those sorts of yeah. things. But um, mm. it's so interesting how melanin impre- imprints differently, right? Yeah. 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 Wow. Mm-hmm. Raina, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I no really appreciate that. Again, like like on our last episode, I just think like, wow, I wish that I had known to ask better <laughs> questions things, huh? when we were friends when we were 18. <laughs> right. And just like go flop on your bed and be like, do you so. want to talk? Yeah, <laughs> like, tell me, like, how does this feel for you? Oh, man. That well, that's is... the power of growing up, though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I would have been able to have even verbalized um, Mm. because I so wanted, we'll talk about this later, but I so wanted to just be the same, you Mm. know? So I don't know if I would have been able to have verbalized it well then, Mm -hmm. right? I'm sure I would have been able to answer something. And we probably, if we had just started talking, would have gotten to this point. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? But Yeah. um, yeah, I wonder. I don't know. Well, I'm grateful we're talking now. <laughs> I guess better better late than never. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's th- thank you for that introduction again. And um, now to turn our attention to the sure. text. Um, this author has been really significant to me in my personal life. Um, even though, as I said, I'd never read this text before. I knew who Francis Beale was because of a class that I took on the civil rights movement last year in mm-hmm. grad school. And if I, I wanted to maybe just give a little bit of historical context that Please I've do. read, just because I'm working on my thesis on on this very topic right now, A- any moment that I'm not taking care of my family, I'm working on the podcast. And it's in between, in the cracks, I'm working on my thesis <laughs> still. So, um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm writing on, um, Women's relationships with each other in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was called SNCC. And when I wrote this, you know, my final paper for the civil rights class, I featured quotes by Frances Beale extensively because she was in that that movement. And so when I approached this text, Double Jeopardy, to be black and female, I was like, oh, I've I know Frances Beale. And but this text was so different from what I had studied um, in SNCC. It was different from things she had said when she was younger. And so I just want to just give a little bit of historical context because there was a big historical shift that happened. So in this class that we took, in the civil rights class, we read like 
a giant volume of of the works of Dr. King. And then we read about SNCC. So that's, again, mm-hmm. the Student Nonviolent yep. Coordinating Committee, SNCC, see. for listeners yep. who can't see the acronym. And, and SNCC was started by um, a man named Bob Moses and Diane Nash and Ella Baker and... Jim Foreman, lots of people that you you could look up if you're interested for for listeners. But these were it, SNCC was started by nonviolent, peaceful people who are trained in nonviolent, peaceful protest and the the Christian values of turning turning the other cheek. And they had used these strategies in civil disobedience and in integrating lunch counters. They were doing the freedom rides in 1964, integrating the interstate buses. They then worked in rural Mississippi, starting schools and registering African-Americans to vote, many of whom had really been so oppressed and so suppressed that they didn't even know that Black people had the right to vote. Raina, you know all of this, but this is just an education for listeners. And it was an education for me. I had never done a deep dive into the civil rights movement and, and known all of these different points of development. But this movement... I mean, especially in rural Mississippi in the early 60s, it was incredibly dangerous work. And reading about men and women who were, you know, when you think of like, oh, they were so brave, they went to jail for what they did. They were beaten with almost sometimes to death, but sometimes women were beaten savagely in jail for for nonviolent protests. Yeah. A lot of these pictures or a lot of these incidences with SNCC are the pictures that um, tend to be repeated over and over and over again. You know what I mean? When Mm -hmm. you see the black and white pictures of Mm -hmm. um, the civil rights protests, a lot of these are the SNCC workers. Honestly. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially Freedom Summer, I feel yep. like was really widely exactly. was um, widely used and widely distributed. Yeah. yeah. It was in the newspapers where yep. some of the other stuff mm-hmm. wasn't. But yeah, these SNCC workers were were murdered and and yep. young men and young women were these are the like you said, like these are the pictures because these are the ones like a, confronting attack dogs, backcountry mm-hmm. mobs who were using shotguns and bombs and these young men and women just reading about their, you know, their accounts in their journals. It was, it's so it's moving. I mean, I just, you will just ball your eyes out reading about it because they, they would just, it, it, and it's in the same vein as Dr. King just saying, stand tall and proud and don't move, but don't fight back. And they called themselves the beloved community, which is Christian language talking about harmony and, e- and equality. Interestingly it, enough, you yeah. can see a lot of parallels with the current Black Lives Matter movement, no matter mm-hmm. how much um, the conservative media, and I use that conservative with a, would it be capital C or lowest case C? I don't know which way it's supposed to be right in that mm-hmm. way. But the conservative media tries to portray the Black Lives Matter protest as violent, and mm-hmm. very rarely are they. They have used a lot of the same patterns as the SNCC movement. It's mm-hmm. just that um, it's very easy um, to sway public opinion via snippets. So mm-hmm. um, they have been classified in some media outlets as a violent movement when it truly is. They were using, if you watch the videos, like the fully unedited videos of most of the protests and then their clashes with police, you will find that the protesters are not the ones who initiated the violence. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. And so frustrating for 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 real Black Lives Matter protesters when you get an outlier and Mm -hmm. then they go off and do something that they don't approve of and it undermines. Yes, it's so frustrating. 
So frustrating. And yes, definitely echoes of earlier um, civil rights work. Well, you know, in history, we never really invent anything. We just repeat it. Right. (laughs) Right. Which is discouraging, too. Like, really, this is still, and it is, I mean, it is forward motion, but it can be two steps, you know, four steps One forward, step forward and steps two steps back. back. Yes. Oh, yeah. So frustrating. Oh, yeah. Yep. Anyway, sorry. Let's keep on no, going. No, no, not at all. Yeah. So, well, so my thesis is specifically on how black women and white women work together in SNCC in the work mm. of racial justice, but then how a schism, really kind of a tragic schism developed between the women by about 1965. And although most SNCC women participated in and sometimes led the women's rights movement, which, as we know, you know, kind of developed in the late 1960s and into the 70s. They did so mostly separately. So the black black and white women worked together for racial justice. But then in general, when they went into the women's movement, they worked separately in the women's movement. And I was like, what happened? Because they had loved each other so dearly and worked in such an integrated way in the early 60s. And so why, when we think of like the second wave of feminism, when that began, which was led by like Betty Friedan and Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem, and also, you know, Shirley Chisholm Mm -hmm. was right there with with Gloria Steinem. um, And Polly Murray was there founding now and stuff. But with those exceptions, really, it was mostly white feminists in the North who were really, you know, in the papers, in the foreground of the women's movement of the 70s. And and we're going to talk more about that for sure. Some women in the movement, some white women in the movement were better than others at including women of color. Gloria Steinem was actually very conscious of including all women. Betty Friedan was not. Uh (laughs) Really. (laughs) But, But yeah, I mean... I I feel like there's kind of some roots in the 1960s. And this is when Frances Beale is writing where there was this schism that happened and white feminism or, you know, women's lib of the 1970s in some ways really was ignorant and insular. And it kind of led to what we now call white feminism. And there's this quote from Rachel Cargill, who's a black Mm -hmm. feminist. And she says, white feminism is white supremacy in heels. She was exactly right. That phrase just like was a dagger in my heart. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, um, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, so anyway, I guess just back to just one yeah. more thing from this historical timeline to set up Francis Beale is that uh, SNCC, which had, as we talked about, SNCC had started out being very egalitarian racially and mm-hmm. gender wise too, made a shift toward black power. And in fact, it it was the president of SNCC at the time, Stokely Carmichael, who was the first person to raise his fist at a Mm -hmm. rally and start chanting black power, which became the rallying cry. And so that took SNCC in a different direction. Yes, it did. And so this essay is a really important um, historical piece in understanding what was on these you know, these people's minds, it was a group of black civil rights workers, what they were thinking and feeling at the time at the end of the 60s. And it's something that we can still learn from in the 21st century, which is what you just talked about with Black Lives Matter. But it's also really just a valuable historical document to understand kind of where they were Were. in their thinking. Right. And so I want to throw in here too, Rena, the the term womanist, because Mm. Um, that was something that was new to me too in that civil rights class that 
a lot of Black women felt so excluded from the quote unquote feminist movement because mm-hmm. it was so so white and heterosexual and upper class. And it was just like, it was the basically the feminine mystique of yeah. like rich white women who yeah. were like, we want a job like our husbands. husbands. And these, <laughs> the black women were like, this doesn't have anything to do with us. So they, they, um, there's this term called womanism, which is centered in the African American woman's experience Mm -hmm. but it's more inclusive did you grow up knowing about womanism i did i did not um not in terms of let's sit down reina as a seven eight year old 14 15 year old and tell you the difference between feminist and womanist but um through my aunts through my mom through my family through family friends it was very very clear to me that the feminist movement was for white upper middle class women really Uh uh-huh very much so. And wow. that um, the social justice movement and the civil rights movement, um, which encompassed womanism, was for all. Yeah, very, wow. very clear. Very clear. Feminism was not for me. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do you, okay, so there's, I mean, and we've talked, especially on our Instagram account, yep. um, which is at be down patriarchy, if you want to watch. My friend Malia and I talked about the word feminism and feminist, and we talked about um, that book, We Should All Be Feminists, yep. which is by an African author. And of course, there's bell hooks. Feminism is for everybody. So, I mean, there's different schools of thought where Absolutely. it's like, oh, no, let's. Well, I guess maybe some women, what what they're trying to do, because may, maybe feminism is more well known as a phrase I that they're so. trying to expand feminism to, to include mm-hmm. Everybody think that's a bad thing. I think if we could have one, just like everybody knows the raised fist and black power, what that means, you know, everybody knows what the peace symbol means, right? It's a global um, acknowledgement of a movement. Uh, So the same thing, if we could expand feminism into being inclusive for all, I think that's great. Um, I just know that historically, that Mm -hmm. has not been the case. Yeah. yeah. So do you call I now I mean now we're mm-hmm. on this tangent but I'm so curious do do you feel comfortable calling yourself a feminist? Oh, absolutely. It makes okay. it easy. It makes it okay. so totally easy. Yeah, and especially okay. since um and we will get into this in just a bit, especially since I work in mainly white spaces, right? Mm. Um and I have now in the position that I'm in, I have a lot of young women who um look to me as their leader. And the majority of these young women are white. Um, That is a very easy catchphrase um, to just kind of all encompass to help them feel empowered in a mainly male dominated society in medicine. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But you think, but so just so I'm understanding, but Mm -hmm. like, if you're with your black family members, there's It's womanist. It's womanist. And I don't even know if we even use the phrase. Does that make sense? Mm, I think it is just an underlying, um, it's an acknowledgement. And there's a lot of things in my family that are just a baseline acknowledgement. And we're just taught from the time we were babies that this is our lived experience and the rest of the world or the majority, let's put it that way, does not understand that we have a separate lived experience than them. Mm. 
especially because wow. my family is um, in general, upper middle class, um, incredibly educated, uh, all of the things that would be viewed as quote model minorities, you know what I mean? And so yeah. we have a lot of um, white acquaintances or the generalized neighborhood or the public or whatever, who would think, oh yeah, she has the exact same experience I do with feminism. Right. We're feminists right. together and it's very, very different. Totally. Well, I think Mm -hmm. that what you just said encapsulates, I think, the whole (laughs) error Mm -hmm. of of this era of feminism, of white women thinking that there was this universal woman's experience and black women saying, like, you have no No idea idea. what our lives are like. (laughs) How can you think? And 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 they they didn't. So. And, right. and we sometimes still don't unless mm-hmm. we ask questions, unless we read and educate ourselves and have conversations, then like this one, we don't know what somebody. Yes, <laughs> we don't know. OK, OK, so let's um, get to know Frances Beale specifically a little bit. So, Raina, could you take us into her bio and just introduce us to this author? Sure. She was born in 1940 in Binghamton, New York. Um, Her mother was a Russian Jewish immigrant and her father was African-American and Native American. So she was what my family calls an international incident. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. It is like, (laughs) I can go into a bunch of stories about that, but because we have a lot of, I did the 23 and me. And interestingly enough, I am only, I believe it was 43 or 40. 7% um, of African origin or African American oh. origin and everything else. I have Native American, I have Islander, I have Jewish, I have uh, French, I have Polish ancestry. And so wow. our family, I know it's fascinating, huh? But yeah. our family has always kind of been like that. And we've always acknowledged that. And um, going back to my mother, I mean, I have an aunt who has red hair and green eyes. I have a, my grandfather was blonde hair with blue eyes. Um, so you know what I mean? Like we just, so we joke that our family is an international incident. And so that's what Frances <laughs> Beale was. She could be part of us. Um, <laughs> um, her parents were political activists. Um, She describes her upbringing as difficult, but acknowledges that it impacted her political consciousness. Her mother taught her uh, that she had a personal and political social responsibility to confront inequalities that she and others were subject to. Uh, During college, she went to France, where she married James Beale, and they had two children. Uh, She attended my dream dream, dream university of the Sorbonne. Mm -hmm. And uh, during her time there, she was aware of the fight and France's colonial domination in Algeria. After six years in France, um, Francis and James returned to the States and um, they were divorced. She afterwards joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s. Um, During her time there, um, SNCC activity shifted away from its original egalitarianism, as we talked about, toward a male dominated black power movement. She and her female colleagues worked in and contributed enormously to the civil rights movement, but sometimes were not given the leadership positions that their work warranted. So in response, she co-founded the Black Women's Liberation Committee of SNCC in 1968, which then evolved into the Third World Women's Alliance. Looking back, uh, Beale aired her grievances in the film, She's Beautiful When She's Angry. She stated, and I quote, I was in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. 
you're talking about liberation and freedom half the night on the racial side. And then all of a sudden, men are going to turn around and start talking about putting you in your place. So in 1968, we founded the SNCC Black Women's Liberation Committee to take up some of these issues, unquote. Uh, During the late 1960s, Beale also became aware of the practice of forced sterilization, and she was actively involved in the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse, which is called the CESA. This organization fought to help poor women of color who were being disproportionately targeted and coerced into involuntary sterilization. She actively worked to empower Black women through her political involvement in organizations and positions held on committees. Also in 1968, she composed an essay that addressed the complex relationships um, that Black women were facing in their collective Black struggle called, quote, double jeopardy to be Black and female, unquote. This document became SNCC's official stance on women. Through her organizing, Beale confronted a range of oppressive regimes that encompassed uh, complex power relationships um, that subordinated and disenfranchised Black women. Her political organizing sought to address structural inequalities and also to empower marginalized groups. Great. Thanks, Raina. Okay, so let's take a look at Beale's essay, Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female. Um, Just like usual, Raina uh, and I will t- will share a couple of points that we each thought were really important. Mm-hmm. And I chose the first quote, which is right from the beginning of the essay. So I'll just dive in. Here's Beale. She says, quote, In attempting to analyze the situation of the Black woman in America, one crashes abruptly into a solid wall of grave misconceptions, outright distortions of fact, and defensive attitudes on the part of many. The system of capitalism and its afterbirth, racism, under which we all live, has attempted by many devious ways and means to destroy the humanity of all people, and particularly the humanity of Black people. This has meant an outrageous assault on every Black man, woman, and child who resides in the United States. In keeping with its goal of destroying the Black race's will to resist its subjugation, capitalism found it necessary to create a situation where the Black man found it impossible to find meaningful or productive employment. More often than not, he couldn't find work of any kind. And the Black woman, likewise, was manipulated by the system, economically exploited, and physically assaulted. She could often find work in the white man's kitchen, however, and sometimes became the sole breadwinner of the family. This predicament has led to many psychological problems on the part of both man and woman and has contributed to the turmoil that we find in the black family structure. End quote. Um, there's a lot that it's we could unpack there. Huh? And we will. Let's get to some of it. But the first question I wanted to ask is if you could just share a little bit of your lived experience in this, what, what Beale calls the double jeopardy of being Black and female in the United States. What, how does that strike you, Raina? So um, when I was thinking about this, I just thought, my goodness, that is loaded. <laughs> um, mm. The short and simple answer is it's very complicated. Um, but uh, the longer answer is that there is a lot of micro and macro um, racism and aggression that is um, has been a pretty consistent part of my life. Um, I feel like 
I felt it more poignantly or more deeply, or it hurt more um, as a younger person. And then as I have grown up and realized that um, my experience is not unique, right? And there is a power in community in that way. Um, I am able to, um, I think the word would be understand and apply more rather than be hurt by a lot of the ways that society has been taught to treat me. I don't know if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, but, Mm um, anyway, so, um, we, I mentioned on it really briefly, we moved from the Bay area to, um, Utah County and that's where I attended high school. And, um, besides the things that I had already felt as a child, especially when I, um, moved into my high school, um, I moved into a high school that had 2,500 students of which I was the only black person in the entire high school. Mm. We had a a less than a half a dozen students that were Asian. Um, We had um, a probably maybe a handful of Pacific Islander students. And um, I remember, I think only two people who were Hispanic, if I am correct. There might have been some of my classmates who were mixed um, with Hispanic and Caucasian heritage now that I'm thinking about it. Um, But it went from a very um, multi, I went from a very multicultural environment to the essence of white suburbia. Looking back as an adult, um, there were advantages of that, especially in terms of the educational system. And we know how taxes plays into the quality of education of the Mm. public educational system. And so I was able to benefit from that. And I truly appreciate that in that way. But in terms of the cultural experience, um, I have to say in many, many ways, it was damaging. Um, not that that damage has not grown into something better, but it was, um, it was stressful and high school, come on, you know, this high school is bad enough. I think middle school is the worst, but Mm, (laughs) high school is bad enough in terms of the stress. And because you're a teenager and you're trying to grow and learn and, um, become that young adult that you are destined to be right. So you already have the angst that is involved with being a teenager, but then to be the only person of color, um, of visible color, I should say amongst Mm. 2,500 white, um, students, it caused a lot of illness, um, both physical and psychiatric for me. I um, had migraines. Now, part of that's genetics. Um, sadly, my family has a history, the female members of my family, this goes back generations, have a history of migraines, but also that happens when you have hormonal changes too, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I developed migraines, um, both um, from my genetic side, but also from the stress. I developed um, gastric ulcers. It was a running joke that I was always the person who had, um, was it Mylanta, the little blue bottles of Mylanta in my backpack at school. So if anybody didn't feel well, they always came to my backpack. I was destined to be a doctor, I guess, even. Nurse Clay, yes. Right, totally, Dr. Clay, yes. (laughs) You know, but um, so I had ulcers from that. And I also had quite disordered eating. And um, that was a direct result of me trying to fit in. 
I wanted to be as skinny as my white friends. I wanted to look like them. Um, I remember trying to lemon bleach my hair. I <laughs> like, Oh man. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of things that I look back and I laugh now and I go, that was just dumb, Raina. You know what I mean? But at the same time, during that time, I just had this desperate um, need to fit in. Um, I, I joke that I pretended for f- you know, all of my high school years that I liked Indigo Girls, nothing against them. They're fantastic <laughs> band, nothing against them. But I really, truly preferred like Missy Elliott and Run DMC oh. and all of those sorts of things, which yeah. is funny too, because it's very stereotypical, right? But but that was not what was cool in my high school. Yeah. <laughs> I looked up the statistics just a couple of days ago, and um, the percentages, surprising, surprisingly or not surprisingly, really haven't changed that much. But um, mm-hmm. when I went and when we were there, I was one of 300 Black students out of, I think we had about approximately 30,000, 30 to 35,000 students. So um, I was very comfortable being the only quote unquote minority in a sea of whiteness, Mm. right? But Mm. um, at the same time, um, looking back, it's a little bit or more than a little bit um, disturbing that that was also my college experience. You know, college is supposed to kind of be a new experience. And for me, in terms of my um, social strata, I guess you could use the word, it wasn't any different at all than from what I had grown up with or high school. Um, and I think the same sorts of, um, feelings or that desire and need to be accepted, uh, continued very much so through, um, throughout BYU since I was, you know, less than 1% of, um, the population at the school, I wanted to be accepted and I wanted to um, just fit in. And so I think that's where I really embraced. I mean, I'd already done it in high school, but I embraced that concept of being a quote unquote model minority. So I wanted to do just everything right so that I could be assimilated into that um, greater whole and in a way almost counteract the thing that I couldn't change, which was my blackness, which was my skin color, you know? So, um, the only thing that I found a little bit difficult though, was that I come from a family of such strong, powerful females. And so, um, you know, this, uh, from college, we, for better or for worse, there is kind of an overarching um, theme of the women go to college to become or to BYU, to our particular college, not college in general, but um, to become educated and to um, better themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But an overarching theme is to um, meet your husband, right? Or your potential spouse. (laughs) I was waiting for you to say that. I'm you like, I would, yeah, I was going to be say like, it might be in the reverse order, actually, right, in right. terms of priorities. Like no. you go there to meet somebody to marry. Oh, and by the way, 
I guess you'll get educated. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> no, I you mean, at least. <laughs> Unfortunately. Oh, and, I mean, and if you think about it, it's the perfect formula, right? These young, I mean, remember how, I don't, do you remember how there was that article that came out? I think it was in the USA Today, if I'm correct, but can't remember when we were there talking about how BYU was one of the top most beautiful campuses yes. in the country. Remember do, that? Yeah. And it's because everybody is so freaking attractive, really. Mm. I mean, but they are, interestingly enough, attractive in, in the same way. Right. Right. right totally. So there is no diversity on that campus no. <laughs> at no. all. But everybody is following the honor code, you know, dressing the same. People are having an overall really healthy lifestyle. And then just like we were just talking about, women are there to meet their husbands. So those women are gorgeous and they look gorgeous all <laughs> Lots of, of the time oh my gosh such maintenance huh yeah yeah <laughs> and totally. so i mean like that's a lot to have to so live up to in general mm. whoever you are but i felt such pressure to be um to wear and be and be the same size as and sound like every other woman there, the only thing I couldn't mm. do was change the fact that I was black, right? And you felt that right. you and wanted to? I did I mean, almost in a way. I did and I didn't. Right and that's what I'm saying is like what's so hard because on one hand of me, I knew that I wanted to be a physician. I had known that mm. since I was um, four years old, but that went against everything that most of my friends were there at college for, mm. you know? And then at the same time, I was not what the same men who were dating my roommates wanted. Mm. And I think that was partially because of my ambition. I was sitting in their same pre-med classes. Like very often I was one of the only females in their pre-med right. classes. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so that I think I can understand how, especially in our, um, our religious culture, is, which is quite patriarchal, mm -hmm. that um, having a woman act like believe that she is on that same footing in terms of um, education and in terms of um, providing, how do I put this, um, in terms of like the ability to provide, et cetera, because mm -hmm. our, you know that our culture is very much so the man provides for the family, which is not a bad thing in that way, but it is a very dominant part of our culture. Not only was I not the right skin color, but mm. I was encroaching on their territory. So that was a really, really... Um, difficult thing to kind of uh, adjust to. And I found that I was either um, exotic or mm -hmm. I was not, I was a friend. Like there were, I had plenty of guy friends. It has nothing to do with that. And not everybody is going to like you um, sexually or whatever it may be. You know what I mean? Like, so that's mm -hmm. fine. Everybody has their taste. But I found that more often than not, the conversations I would have with guys or the dates that I would go on or whatever, it ended up either that like I was something exotic and that none of their other friends had. And they kind of, um, and it was a very odd sort of dynamic there. It was almost like I was this thing that they were like, look at what I've got. Oh my gosh. I took a black girl on a date or, Oh, oh gosh. my gosh. I may have tried to kiss a black girl. Half of them. I didn't even let do that. Cause I was like, you're just gross, but mm. you know what I mean? Like, but so it was that or else it was, 
I really like you. And I can't think, let me see, one, two, three times I remember particularly with guys that I really, really liked. Um, Three times, each one of them, I was told, I really, really like you, Raina. I think you're amazing. But there was always a but. Mm. And two out of the three times, I couldn't bring you home to my parents. No way. mm Mm-hmm. And the other third time, the third time it was basically like, um, I think my parents would be okay with this, but just everybody else I know, it would just be too hard. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Now, granted, looking back at it from our lens, you know, 20 years later, right? Fine. Okay. Not okay. But I'm glad I didn't put myself through that heartache. You know what I mean? Or the drama Mm. or whatever it may have been like that. I am so glad that I was able to be pragmatic enough to be like, okay, whatever, moving on. You know, it hurts, obviously. And I'm probably forgetting all the nights that I stuffed my face with pizza. and You know what I mean? Like all that Mm. sort of stuff. Right. Mm. (laughs) But at the same time, that was basically the gist of my college experience. You know, at least in a social way. I have beautiful, beautiful girlfriends and that I will always be super grateful for you. And there are so many people that I could name that I just became super close to. And I realized the power of female friendship Mm. and uh, that I will say that's a good thing that came out of college is I realized I didn't need to particularly be dating anybody to still enjoy myself, have a great time and do those sorts of things. But I was very much so aware that I was not what um, was wanted or desired in that way. And that hurt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that was socially. And then um, in terms of, you know, in terms of like medicine, I think that each of the experiences that I had, honestly, um, So high school or growing up in high school in Utah Valley prepared me for college, which then very much so prepared me for medicine. I actually went to the University of Utah um, and I point that out because um, because the the racial makeup of the of of my class was pretty similar to what I had already been used to. There Mm. are other places and other medical schools in the country that have a much more um, diverse racial makeup. But um, my class was not that I was the only African American in my entire class. Um, We had about one or two others in each one of the classes, um, you know, above us, below us, et cetera, et cetera. But out of 400 medical students, 400, you know, 400, 410, whatever, during that time um, that I was on campus, there were only less than, there were never more than eight to 10 Mm African-American students. So once again, a very similar um, setting, right? Did you ever, sorry, I just have to ask, did you ever consider going somewhere else that would have more racial diversity and not be so lonely? Yes, I absolutely did. I absolutely did. And I actually got accepted to a couple of other of these medical schools Um, for personal decisions. I chose to stay in Utah. Honestly, it was my mother. Um, She was really um, just, there were just, you know, personal family decisions that Mm -hmm. um, is why I stayed. Also, I got um, a partial scholarship. um, So that actually helped too, right? Um, yeah. I come from a single mother who is a teacher. So um, the burden of m- the financial burden of medical school was on me, 
you know, yeah. which is fine. That's the way it should be in that situation. Right. But so yeah. I, I took economic and then um, just familial responsibilities and uh, chose you University of Utah. I regret mm. that. I will say that. I regret that for both college and medical school, um, both of which I had the opportunities to be on much more diverse campuses. And I did not choose that. And that's, you know, but, you but know, there are understandable right? reasons. Yeah, right? well, there, yeah, yeah. And at the time, especially to be by your mom, I mean, right. that's really noble. That's a beautiful, you know, <laughs> consideration. It is. It's lovely. And then totally, I mean, the financial, that's the reality is that yeah. medical school is expensive. Super so expensive. it totally makes sense. But that's and, just my, my heart breaks for well, you. Well, it was. And, you know, and I chose that over, I mean, I am super grateful. I came out of medical school probably about in about half the amount of debt that my that yeah. I would have been if I had not yeah. been an in-state um, student and on in-state yeah. tuition and with that. And so for that, I am super grateful now being, you know, a fully grown adult and having right. to pay bill- bills and things like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's that. Um, but, you know, the same things that happened in all of my previous experiences started day one um, in medical school. I remember um on orientation. Now, two of my dear friends, um, both are Asian American. Um, and I, uh, we actually were all pre-med students together. And so, um, we, and we all ended up, uh, going to, uh, the university of Utah. Um, but anyway, we, uh, walked up in orientation and we're saying hello, we're meeting people, you know, just doing all of the great things that um, you do on orientation day and to meet your classmates who you're going to spend the next very four intense years of your life with. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, we walked up to one of um, a group of guys. There were three of them standing there. They were all male and Caucasian, which once again, not unlike the entire race makeup of my class. So they were nothing, you know, out of the ordinary in that way. And we all started talking about getting in and how happy we were to be there and how stressful it had been and those sorts of things. And um, then one of these guys looked at me and he basically like had kind of this scoff slash sneer on his face, you know? I mean, it was quote unquote Mm -hmm. pleasant, but it was still like just this sneer. And he was like, I don't know what you had to worry about. And, Mm. um, and I said, I was like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, we all, you know, had to take the MCAT. We all had to do X, Y, and Z, you know, like that sort of thing. Mm. And, um, and then he was all like, um, he said, you got in because of affirmative action. Oh my gosh. And I just looked at him and you know, you it, life kind of slows down, but then you kind of also flash like, um, like I had this flash like of red, almost like I wanted to be like, you don't know my grades, you don't know my volunteer service, you don't know my MCAT score, you don't know what my essay is, you don't know what my letters mm-hmm. of recommendation are, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like just the same way I don't know what yours are. You know what I mean? But we were both able to get into medical school, right? And I just looked at him and I don't even remember what I said, except for I was like, excuse me? And he was all like, and then he being emboldened as he was, and this is also, I mean, he's 
this is his baseline personality, not just him being a white male. Like as I got to know him over the four years, he's very, very confident in himself. Let's put it that way. I think that's a nice way to say it. Um, but um, he, he said to me, he was all like, yeah, you know, you basically took the place of one of my best friends who couldn't get in. Mm. Oh, Oh, <laughs> I mean, what did you even say? Like, I can't believe he had the like. That's I, why I'm saying he's he's very confident in himself. My goodness, <laughs> you know what I was gonna say? Like, I mean, what a an absolute. I mean, I yeah, I want to swear. Like, right for him things, to actually yeah. say it. But on the other hand, I almost feel like, well, I guess he said what he was thinking yeah inside and thoughts then right you know remember you have what, inside thoughts and outside right. thoughts he had his yeah, you inside don't say thoughts that. on the outside <laughs> it's just a disgusting thing to think let alone say but at least then you know like well good to know what you're thinking inside so you're not like thinking he's your friend and privately right. he's having right. these horrible right racist thoughts. oh i'm so sorry reina that's awful but that's basically you know i have to say it was it wasn't good it was awful um but like you said it was you know keep your friends close and your enemies closer right Mm. i knew very much so where i stood with him and where i stood with a few of my classmates i'm not gonna say quite a few because in general even though i had a majority caucasian class um really just decent good people you know what i mean like there was nothing you know what i mean not um i'm sure you know they were smart enough to keep their inside thoughts right and then there were some just incredible people who were like who would point out to me things that um i that i may have acknowledged or seen on campus or incidences where we had racist incidences and they were the ones who spoke up because they were like one it shouldn't be you who has to speak up all the time and two this Mm. is bull you know what you know what i mean Mm. and so i had some really great friends uh, that also came from medical school that were like this is a bunch of crap you know Mm -hmm. but at the same time we are like it was still quite isolating because these dear friends of mine like so we would go to like our counselor's office you know you have your career counselors and they kind of steer you into what specialty because in medical school Mm -hmm. everybody starts out you um, learn the two you have the two um, years of your basic curriculum where everybody learns the same thing all the things you need to know about anatomy physiology etc etc and then starting in your third year you have a series of um, clinical rotations and those clinical rotations will first start you out in all the basics that we all need to know like pediatrics internal medicine etc you know um but Mm -hmm. then as you get further along you start moving into specialty clinical rotations that um help steer you in the course of what you're going to go to for your residency which is basically like the same for you the listeners who don't know it's like the equivalent of an apprenticeship right so after you get Mm -hmm. your doctorate degree then you move on and you have anywhere from three years if you're in family practice to 10 years if you are a neurosurgeon um Um, of Mm postgraduate training slash apprenticeship. And so, um, but anyway, like, so we have these career counselors and these people who are assigned to you to help to supposedly, and I'm using that in air quotes again, help you find the best fit for your personality, right? Mm -hmm. And I would constantly get 
from the people in the career office um, suggestions that I go into primary care. Now, I knew from the beginning that I was not, um, I did not have the personality for primary care. Our primary care doctors are amazing. They are the most, they are the workhorses of medicine. They just take care of everybody and everything and they put their head down and they just plow through and they do the minutia of medicine, right? And I just knew Mm -hmm. that that was not my personality. Um, I also, uh, you know, true confessions. I, I don't like seeing the same people over and over again. <laughs> mm. And that's what you have to do in primary care, right? You have a patient mm. population, they come to you for hopefully for 20, 30 years of their life, right? Oh, well, with sure. pediatrics, uh-huh. it's 18 years of your life, right? And then mm-hmm. with adult internal medicine docs, hopefully they're your doctor. I mean, people move and things like that, but you could have the same doctor for f- 30, 40 years, right? If you didn't move. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so that was not interesting to me. Like I like to take care of an acute situation and then move on. Like that's just my personality. But I kept on having these people tell me you should go into primary care. And I was like, why? And they're all like, well, that way you can quote, serve your people. Unquote. Oh, yeah. Oh, what does that mean? I mean, that means exactly what you think it means. Well, but I mean, what? <laughs> yeah. But can't you? I don't get it. Uh huh. Like, exactly. So they're like. Because doctors serve ev- everyone. Yeah. But see, I could go and I could be a black doctor for black people, which there's a whole lot of layers to. Um, unravel with there but it was mainly kind of we could just sum it up with one little statement separate but equal oh gosh yeah 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 also what i think is very interesting is that our primary care doctors um they make less than what our specialty doctors make so um on average a family medicine doctor makes about half of what, let's say, um, a oncologist, that's a cancer doctor makes. And Mm. an oncologist um, makes about half of what an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon makes. So Mm. a primary care doctor is making anywhere from three to five times less than what a surgeon makes. Wow. Mm -hmm. So that almost seems... Like, should I just speak freely? Just Were speak they like it, trying to block you out of the higher paying jobs? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. Raina. Mm-hmm. Because those are reserved for who they deem oh. are worthy and who oh. are worthy. My white male classmates, some of my white female classmates, but mainly my white male classmates. And I would walk out of these um counseling sessions and i'm saying that with air quotes super confused because i was really i mean i was i've gotten more articulate and i've gotten probably better at being politically correct as i've gotten older but i was just as bold and my you know my mouth got me in just as much trouble back then and i'd be like i'm so confused i have no desire to do this why do you keep on suggesting it oh well we just think why don't we do another family practice rotation and we'll put you with this great doc and I really think you love it and I'm all like no (laughs) 
Wow. And then my white male classmates would come out and they're like, oh my gosh, I just got placed in the rotation with X, Y, and Z, who's a famous, you know, cardiovascular surgeon or X, Y, and Z, who is like a, um, he's like the top anesthesiologist or X, Y, and Z, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. I just, oh, I'm just speechless. <sighs> wow. Yep. So, <sighs> I mean, it's just, it was very, so there was both macro and micro racism. That micro racism that I'm explaining right now was kind of, I feel like the pervading um, undertone of my medical schooling and then my medical training. Like it's constantly there and you are constantly being quote put in your place. And that is, I mean, medicine's super hierarchical anyway. So medical students are on the bottom and like, you know, the attending surgeons on the top and you kind of work yourself up in that ranking. Right. But, um, If you want to be, if you want to, you know, make that hierarchy in terms of students or in terms of trainees, uh, the black female is like the lowest of the low in terms of Mm -hmm. ranking of Mm -hmm. the the greater hierarchy, you know? Mm -hmm. And because it's like, I mean, sorry, I was going to say, I mean, and that's why I asked you this question on this episode on double jeopardy, right? Because I've, I've heard my white women friends talk about, that difficulty that they experienced sure. in whatever yeah. you know, field oh, that yeah. they go into in medicine or in business or whatever, where they're feeling like they're having to fight and fight and fight to get taken seriously and yep. to be absolutely promoted. Mm-hmm. And then my friends of color of both genders experiencing that. And that's what Francis Beale is writing about is like the double whammy. Oh, of- it totally is. On both planes. And that's what I'm hearing from you that you encounter, right? I mean, it totally is. And I, I mean, it is true being a female, you know, we're told all the time, we're too emotional. We're, we're, we don't make decisive decisions. Like there's plenty of things, you know, you're not invited you know what was so hilarious is just about six months ago, I found out a bunch of my colleagues all were like golfing together every weekend. And I no don't way. golf. I don't golf. So it's fine. But I just thought it hilarious that I had not even been invited, hmm. you know, and that they were all and like they almost looked like little kids when they found out that I knew and I didn't care. But I just had to laugh. I was like, well, there's being a female in medicine, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, and it's honestly totally fine, but it's still even, and I'm the chief of my group now, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, and this was before I was chief, like now I, um, I throw up most of the stuff that I'm not invited to just being the boss, you know what I mean? Yeah, but (laughs) still. Right. But this was before that. Right. And I was all like, that is just funny to me. And what was even funnier is they had invited one of my male colleagues who is more than outspoken about the fact that he is not athletic. Oh, they invited him. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you know, once again, I can laugh at that because it's not like I, I, I take it personally, but I don't take it personally. I just say, well, there's one more example of our misogyny in yeah. medicine and in professionalism, in professional business envi- working environments. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just straight up. It's there and we've got to fix yeah. that. But yeah, I have this double, double jeopardy and it's hard because especially with my family being told you are a powerful female, being told speak up, right? 
Um, mm. So I find that I do that. But in medicine, I feel like I like basically my entire like medical career can be summed up in either I'm either housekeeping or I'm mm. like Miranda Bailey from Grey's Anatomy. And it mm. seems like I'm put into one of two categories or tropes, you know, and mm. there's not much for anything else. I remember um, once when I was on a rotation, this was when I was an intern. Um, so I was in training and um, I spoke up during ICU rounds. So um, during ICU rounds, you all uh, um it's the entire team. So it's pharmacy, it's nursing staff. Um, it is your attending surgeon and however many residents slash trainees are on the, um, the rotation at that time. And you go around and you do rounds in front of each patient's room and you go through their day and you go through their vitals and go through any changes that they've had, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really good time to get all of the teams involved, um, with the patient's care and to relay information and then come up with a plan of action, um, for the patient. And, um, so granted, I was on the lower end of the totem pole because I was the youngest, the most junior um, resident on the team. But um, my attending um, was talking about something about the patient. It was something about one of their lab values or something. I cannot even remember now exactly what it was. But um, now I think about it and I'm like, gosh, he must have been so mad, like the audacity of a, of a junior resident to correct him. But I said, um, I was like, well, excuse me, sir. I'm like, but that's not correct. This is what the lab values were or whatever it was or the testing or you know what I mean. But I just said, this is what they were. And honestly, I was really only doing my job because yeah, as the yeah. most junior resident on the team, you were literally supposed to know every single minute yeah. detail about these patients, right? And you were the one mm -hmm. who was supposed to basically vomit out this information whenever anybody needed it so that, mm -hmm. you know, you like that. So I was literally doing my job. And, you mm -hmm. know, very similar, white male turns to me and had almost the same look that my medical school classmate had had four or five years pre previously. And he basically said, oh, the monkey thinks she can teach the professor something. No. Yeah. No, Raina, are you? Yep. And I, like, if I could go white. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my if gosh. I could, right? <laughs> but oh. I literally blanched, and I, 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 I could not say anything. I was like, "What?" And there were, remember, a dozen people at least standing there, and a couple of people. One other person looked aghast. A couple of people didn't even notice what he had said or pretended they didn't notice. A couple of people looked down at their feet really quickly, but nobody said anything. Nobody corrected him. Nobody said, excuse me. Nobody, you know what I mean? And it is those moments that you realize truly how alone you are. And what was crazy is he may have been derisive to one of my white colleagues, like who was in my same position, but he would have never used a blatantly racist slur. No, I can't believe he said that. You know? And 
what made it even worse was not just him, but when I went to my residency director, who is the person who is supposed to be the advocate for the residents, right? Um, I went to my residency director. I said, this is what happened. He at first said that couldn't have happened. You heard him wrong. I said, it absolutely happened. Like and you're lying? Right. Like, like I'm you're lying. making it right. up? I was totally, yeah. I just oh. make that up, right? I take one of, and this was our chief vascular surgeon at that time. So I would just decide to take on the chief vascular surgeon just for the fun of it. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, I literally didn't want that man to know I existed, right? Mm. But I mm. spoke up because that was my job to do on that team, right? Mm -hmm. And because we were making decisions for this patient. And if we made a wrong decision based on wrong information right. on a critically ill patient, one, that's a domino effect that's not okay. But two, me being self-protective knew that would come back on me, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right? Because I was the lowest um, physician at that point in time on the totem pole. And right. so my residents... But what if you had been rude? What if you had been... What if you yeah. had spoken out of turn yeah. and done something totally unprofessional? Then what? So then he's allowed to call you a racist slur? I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just like yeah. enraged. Yeah. I... I'm yeah. at, there's no circumstance in which that's okay for him to do. And again, like ever, 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 ever. Raina, I'm ever, but my, uh, my professor, my residency director first didn't believe me. Then of course said, well, if you can find somebody else who can corroborate the story. Oh so gosh. I went back to the one person who, was absolutely aghast. And that was one of our incredible ICU nurses. Um, she was a white female in probably her fifties, which mm -hmm. I was in the South. So just so you know, that was great to have an advocate like that. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And she was like, that was absolutely unacceptable. I can't believe he did that. You know what I mean? Like all of the things, the appropriate response you would. And I said, well, would you be willing to tell our residency director? She said, of course I will. Um, she sent him an email. She said, this is what happened. This is the date. This is the time. She was she was so good. You got to love a good. critical care nurse, you know, because they yeah. know how to document, right? <laughs> and so yeah. she listed, I saw, she CC'd me on that email. And she literally listed every person who heard it. Good. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? She called yeah. them all out. <laughs> right? <Good. laughs> yeah, that's good. And so finally, after all of that, my residency director said, okay, well, I believe you now, I guess. I guess this is what happened. But, you know, what I just want you to do is I want you to just lay low. <sighs> wow. So, so he, no. Nope. No nope. consequences for the person who said it. Nope. And, and he you also, had to be yep. the one to lay low. You yep. had to diminish yourself and make right. yourself. Right smaller so that he, right. nobody would be uncomfortable with what he did, he did to, you. to you. Yeah. And he also implied that, you know, if I didn't lay low, remember, he basically said, remember, this is the guy who gives you your grade for this rotation. Oh my gosh. This mm -hmm. is horrifying. So. Yeah. What was I supposed to do? Right. And that's how these, that's yeah. how the power dynamics just stay Continue the way they are. And, yes. Yeah. Never change. They never, ever change. And mm. even now, um, like I said, I am the chief of my group, which is 
awesome and not awesome. People tell me congratulations. This is fairly recent. It's been about six months or whatever. And people be like, oh, Dr. Clay, that's amazing and everything. I'm like, well, maybe more condolences, you know? But, (laughs) But I mean, I am super proud because I'm the first female and I'm the first um, person of color who's ever been chief of this group. That's amazing. It is. And I am super proud of myself in that way. Also, once again, though, look at that. I mean, we're in 2021. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. And they've all only been white males. Like, that says something about the society that we have developed and we perpetuate. Yeah, Right. That goes right back to the double jeopardy, right? Not only yeah. of being black and female, but the double jeopardy of being in a in a structure, in a professional structure that perpetuates this double jeopardy. So where were we at, Amy? I think we are on another quote from the text. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So getting back into the text, I would say that one of the main things that I took away from this essay, like as a whole was a new understanding of the link between sexism, racism, and capitalism. Because uh, kind of up until now, up until doing this project, I hadn't read very much feminist academic writing from the 1960s and 70s and afterward. And now that I'm reading a bunch of those texts, I'm seeing that those three systems are are really often linked, right? Mm-hmm. Um Authors will write about like, yeah, about racism, sexism and capitalism. And I feel like coming into this, I feel like, yeah, I, I understand sexism. That's why I'm doing this project. And <laughs> and I I mean, like, I, I get it. And then I, I understood racism. And and at first, actually, I didn't even really understand how racism and sexism were linked. But I'm definitely learning that the more I'm doing this project. But I still wasn't really understanding. Like when they would get to capitalism, I'd be like, Okay, like why does how does that interlock with racism and sexism? And we talked about this a little bit on the episode um, on the real wealth of nations by Rianne Eisler, and that helped me to get a better idea of the economics angle a little bit. But mm-hmm. something from um, this essay by Frances Beale really, really struck me. So that's the next quote I'm going to read. Um, she says in this in this essay, she says that the afterbirth of capitalism is racism. Yep. And that I was like, okay, how uh-huh. so capitalism came first and that, that racism came afterwards and I was like kind of like processing that like well how did that work? And so she says capitalism quote found it necessary to create a situation where the black man found it impossible to find meaningful or productive employment. More often than not, he couldn't find work of any kind. And the black woman, likewise, was manipulated by the system, economically exploited and physically assaulted, end quote. And when I read that passage, it just suddenly clicked for me. Um, I just kind of had the whole historical timeline of um, black people in America from the the 1600s. And I I just thought, oh my gosh, it's because capitalism relies on a person having capital, right? I mean, so having, if if you want to get ahead in life, you have to have some sort of seed of like wealth or assets. That's what capital Mm -hmm. is. And so then the, the person kind of capitalizes on that money and and tries to grow it and uh, as big as they can right and mm-hmm. so in capitalism basically everybody 
takes what they have and makes the most of it. And it's kind of survival of the fittest, right? Absolutely. So, so then I was thinking about white European and American men from the 1500s on through the 1800s. And it just hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, some of these men figured out that they could get more capital by kidnapping and enslaving human beings. And they going Absolutely. to the African continent and and selling these human beings as slaves to increase their own profit. Yep. And, and part then of the, the reason then, why they raped the black women was to create more free labor. Yes. I think that's a point we always have to remember. So just to, to put it in that context of like these people were keeping a, a huge profit margin because they weren't paying for labor. <laughs> They built the economy, the entire economy of the American South, arguably yep. the North as well. Yep, absolutely. And many other countries through this egregious yep. exploitation of, of human beings. Mm -hmm. And that was the that's part of the capital. And yep. and so then to see Beale say like and then black men couldn't get jobs and black women could. And so just to see like. That system didn't just vanish with the 13th Amendment once there was, you know, technically emancipation, but there was sharecropping and then there there was reconstruction and the the once, you know, black people were technically free, they still were not given access to the capital that existed in the world. And so right. through systemic racism, they're still kept from getting equal access to capital. And so for me, that was like, oh my gosh, that's how capitalism in the first place bred more racism mm -hmm. and that's how they are interlocking as systems of oppression in this country it's it's so true and it continues today in most of our professional institutions it even continues in medicine like i was saying back about the counselors, quote unquote, who were urging me to go into primary care um, yes. because primary care is the least paid specialty or, you know, area of medicine. And so therefore, once again, the highest paid specialties are reserved for white physicians. So um, that's not a coincidence. The yeah. money and or the capital is reserved for white physicians. So did you, so out of all the anesthesiologists in the United States, only 3% are black. And only 1.5%, 1 1.5%, whatever, are black females. Um, so wow. while black people are 13% of our U.S. population, only 2% of all doctors total are black and female. Wow. But interestingly enough, female physicians make up over half of the OBs, pediatricians, and family practice doctors in the United States. Oh, really? Uh -huh. So white women. White women. And this okay. is also where our black physicians and our minority physicians are um, highly represented, especially our okay. immigrant population makes up the other, um, the other majority of um, our primary care specialties. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So once again, we have women. And minorities doing the quote unquote work of medicine without the same compensation. Right. And then, and it's just, and then it snowballs, right? Because right. every year mm -hmm. that your income is lower, yep. that's, that's a smaller 
seed money that's in the bank making more money. And right. that's right. more money makes more money, money. right? And yeah. so that capital just it so the wealth and you know, we've the all read gap. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's how it keeps perpetuating that yep. you don't pass down yep. you know, they uh, And yeah. then we have society who tells us, Oh, but you have access. You're making money. I don't see why you're upset about this. You just need to do the same things your white colleagues are. I mean, they don't say that, but that's what they're saying, right? But then you're like, but I have a smaller seed money. I have I do I have a higher debt to income ratio. That right. means a lower credit score, which does not allow me you know what I mean? Like it just perpetuates right. and perpetuates and perpetuates. It's just a more palatable version of slavery. Yeah. Oh. Well, that that actually there was one more quote by Beale that kind of develops this same mm-hmm. thing. So she, Beale says, quote, women also represent a surplus labor supply, the control of which is absolutely necessary to the profitable functioning of capitalism. I have to pause there to because that reminds me of, you know, the the very first episodes we did on this podcast about how in the agricultural revolution men began to control women because they realized if they owned and controlled women's yep. reproductive capacity that have yep. a bigger labor force, which yep. is what you just referred to specifically in, yep. in slavery. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, so they would have anyway. Okay, mm-hmm. so Beale continues, she says, quote Women are paid less for the same work that men do, and jobs that are specifically relegated to women are low-paying and without the possibility of advancement. Statistics from the Women's Bureau of the U.S. Department of Labor showed that the wage scale for white women was even below that of black men, and the wage scale for non-white women was the lowest of all. And this is, of course, being written in the um, in 1969. But um, so I looked up the data right now mm-hmm. on LeanIn.org, mm-hmm. and f- currently, for every dollar a white man makes. A white woman makes 79 cents and a black woman makes 62 cents. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So it is. And, it, and I also read some data. It really has not changed very much since Beale was writing. No, actually. no, no, no. The percentage hasn't changed. Just the um, or the yeah, the percentage ratio hasn't the changed. The ratio. The yeah. ratio hasn't changed. It's really interesting. Right. So this is neither. This is for male versus female. I don't know the statistics for what a black female physician makes compared to a white mm-hmm. male physician. But the median salary for male physicians is $86,000 more than females across the oh board. My- Goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There is so far to go then. I yeah. mean, people. Ugh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Oof. That's huge. It's now, huge. People it's are enormous. going to try to explain it away by saying, well, a female's a pediatrician and this male's a neurosurgeon. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but, but not but that's okay. What, you know what right, I mean? Not okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and what you were describing, right. that's why that, I mean, mm-hmm. that story that you told earlier is so yep. powerful. If people are being funneled into certain Absolutely. fields of medicine that that they're used to like, oh, well, well, you know, a black physician is going to want to do this job and right. a woman is going to want to do this, do this job. job. A black woman is going to want to do this job. Right. Then uh, then that doesn't. And there is a, historically a male uh, preference for males in medicine because people, once again, society historically thinks that males are more um, reliable. Does that make sense? Because once again, men, 
like to control women's reproduction and what right. women are going to do once they decide to reproduce, if they decide to reproduce. Um, right. I will say I am not that our male physicians aren't wonderful. Like I have a fantastic group of colleagues, so I don't want to um, portray that at all. But I am so proud of the fact that um, just being a female leader, I have made things like breastfeeding breaks normal in my group mm, and they were you. not before and i am fighting to get an actual breastfeeding room in the hospital which by the way it's legally required to do so but you know there's a lot of loopholes that people can say well there's a room available okay that mm. people walk in and out of and that people go to the bathroom in and you know what i mean but whatever we don't need to talk about that but <laughs> i have made my office like it's the breastfeeding room like there's a little sign now and it just says wow. meeting in progress and so my private office becomes because i have a lot of young females who work for me who are wonderful and they're all expanding their families if they choose to do so. And I'm like, they need to have a clean, quiet, locked place to be able to do what they need to do. Right. And so my office has a little sign that they just go in whenever they need to. And then they flip the thing and it's meeting in progress. And I have a larger office that we all are in, you know, that I just move out of. Or sometimes I even do my work just sitting in there talking with them. You know what I mean? Wow. But at least like I I am proud of that in that oh. um, in what we're trying to do to change the narrative. But it is yeah. truly and we do not have time to talk about this in this podcast, maybe another one. But like you said, men have been in charge of women and in charge of their reproduction and women get penalized for actually doing what men are demanding us to do. Mm hmm. Well, that's a great way to wrap up this episode, Raina. That's those are amazing stories. Thank you so much for sharing. Those are such powerful points. And I'm so grateful that you are here with us today. Thank you so much. I've loved being here. Seriously. I could do this any day with you. I wish we could. I wish I want to like now that we're like talking so much, I want to I know. Just, we should just do it more often. We should just do it more often. Well, thank you again. And listeners, if you haven't yet read this essay, I really highly recommend it. Um, I recommend looking up um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, learning about, you know, more about this time in history. Um, and then, yes, we'll have a whole part two. So <laughs> join us next time for more analysis and more discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 